0: The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift Shift Bloom...
1: Like, I didn't use the police locker room for 10 years. My last 10 years of my career, I didn't go in. I mean, I had been assaulted twice by my colleagues, and and these were Black officers. I wasn't fighting with white officers, right? Right. Um, One officer grabbed me and choked me, caught me in a meeting, and said, if this was 20 years ago, we would have killed you by now, because you're a traitor to this department and to this profession. And um, never forgot that.
0: For over two decades, DeLacy Davis helped keep the peace on the streets of East Orange, New Jersey, where he was a police officer in one of the toughest cities in the state. But within the department, among his own colleagues, there was no peace to be found. After a 17-year struggle against corruption and injustice, he left the force. But he continues to be a force for change in all his roles, both professional and personal. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. My guest today is Dr. DeLacy Davis, the Executive Director of the Family Support Organization or FSO of Union County, New Jersey, as well as the Executive Director of the New Jersey Alliance of FSOs, where he and his staff provide peer support partner training and certification to 15 FSOs statewide. He was a school principal for five years and is a 20-year veteran of a police department in which he commanded the community services unit and retired as a sergeant with 12 departmental commendations. In 1991, Dr. Davis founded Black Cops Against Police Brutality. And in 1994, he was awarded the prestigious Renault Robinson Award by the National Black Police Association. He holds a BA from Drew University, an MAS from Fairleigh Dickinson, an MPA from Rutgers, and a doctorate in education from St. John Fisher College. He is also a sought-after speaker and analyst, an accomplished percussionist, songwriter, and producer. And as I hope we'll hear more about today a dad as a jersey girl myself i say you do our fair state very very proud welcome dr davis
1: thank you kristen thank you very much i'm honored to be here today
0: so given your pedigree and your contributions and your depth and breadth of study and your service it's almost impossible to know where to begin in this conversation But you are a (laughs) self-proclaimed agent of change, and this show is about change. So I want to start there, and I want to start with the absolute basics. How do you define change?
1: So, I mean, change basically is moving things, people, circumstances, and systems Mm -hmm. from one condition to another. That can be both positive, it can be negative but it is change. And in this context, for me, um, it's in a positive movement. Um, and that is defined based upon the institution or the people or the community or environment based upon how they define change in positive movement, because we are not a monolith as a people and as a community. And therefore each community may define change very differently.
0: Is that your first order of business when you go into a community or an organization is to find out what how they define change?
1: absolutely. Um, I think it's important to understand what other people want. You may have an idea. However, the people that you think or you believe or you hope you're moving along a continuum must align with that idea. So it is much easier to understand where they are, where they want to be, and where they'd like to go than to try to bring them along to where you think they should be going. So for example, you know, I'm a girl, dad, and I I hope I'm not (laughs) jumping ahead, but- I'm a girl dad, and each of my children, when we helped them to identify where they wanted to be in their lives, both my birth child and my adopted children, they're at different places in their lives. But each of them changed their life based upon what their goals, dreams, and ideals were, not what mine are. And therefore, my job in their life was to help them achieve their goals. You can't possibly know more and know better about someone else's life than they know about themselves you may have an idea, you may have an inkling, you may even be right sometimes, but at the end of the day, you don't get to define someone else's reality. They get to define that for themselves. And our job, if we're doing this kind of work, is to help them with that definition, to guide them with the definition, and sometimes maybe to reveal to them things that they don't see based on their definition, not mine.
0: Wow. I want to go back. I don't want to leave out any of your professional life or professional achievements although we couldn't even possibly hit them all today but i want to know what your time on the police force taught you about change
1: oh my goodness so my time on the police force was tumultuous mm-hmm. i spent 20 years there and 17 of my 20 i spent fighting my own agency and city government i'm the blackest city in the state of new jersey one of the blackest police departments in the state of new jersey and what i saw so i was fighting black people but it was still an agenda that was from the law enforcement perspective that was grounded in things like racism, sexism, um, nepotism, cronyism, homophobia. And so that was the fight at that level. And I think at the administrative level, in terms of city government, it was political. Um, I could have been any color. The problem is I happened to be black and I happen to be galvanizing a black, brown and white community against the institutions. And so they had a need to fight me. And I understand that better now than I did then, because then I was—I joined the force. I was 23 years of age. I retired at 44. And so I got to see myself change and grow and evolve. I left the force in 20 years, which was unheard of then for the most part, because I walked away from medical benefits. I needed to stay another five years. And rather than stay for 70%, I took 50% and left. Wow. With the hope and belief that God would provide and I would find another way forward.
0: What prompted you to become a police officer in the first place? And speak into those changes that you did go through yourself. You said it prompted change in you being on the police force. So so those two things are interesting to me.
1: So I I became a police officer to finance my music career. No other reason. Wow. And my you know, my, p- my publicist, she hates when I give that answer. She says, you are too well-educated to give that answer. I said, but that's the truth. There was no other reason. Didn't like police, didn't like police officers. I wanted to finance my music career. I had a plan. At 19, I started thinking it through, that if I could buy a house and it was a multifamily dwelling, I could use one rent to pay the mortgage, one rent to put in the bank, and the other rent to pay for studio time. And that's exactly what I did. Six months after joining the force, I bought my first house and I ran to the bank. I didn't even, I was so young and foolish. I didn't even know you need a cashier's check. I had cash in my pocket. Like I had <laughs> 10% all cash in my pockets in New York City. I didn't know. And when I took the money out, my attorney and the other attorney jumped. Said, whoa, is that drug dealer money, you can't hand me $12,000 in cash, right? <laughs> so that was the first part of change. I thought I had learned everything, but I didn't know that part of it. The other piece was I fell in love with people and service In while on the force, I'd only planned to be there five years. So that was the first change in terms of my career. It changed my trajectory because I said, I'm going to do five years, make enough money, go into the music business and be done. And while there, I met all sorts of folks that could influence that. I met Vinnie Tretch and KG from Naughty by Nature, who live in East Orange. Queen Latifah and her mother and family, who grew up in East Orange. I trained her brother in the police academy, Lance, before his passing, in East Orange. And then Steve Washington from the group Slave. I, all in East Orange. There's a really rich history of
0: music in that yes. part of New Jersey. And, but, yes. but you might not think you would connect with it by being a cop.
1: No, not at all. And 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 the way I connected with Steve, who was very prominent, was that um, I was with a rookie police officer. We were walking down the street. The vehicle is parked in their driveway blocking the sidewalk. My colleague, who's just a hard nose, says to the family on the porch, and I didn't know who they were at the time, whose car is this? You have to move it. So the wife comes to move the car. As she goes to get in the car, and she was one of the original Brides of Funkenstein. So, and I didn't know any of this on the front end. I'm just walking a beat. He says, well, before you get in the car, I need to see your license, registration, insurance card. I looked at him like, are you kidding me? This is their home. They're in their driveway. He insisted. So she didn't have that with her. So her husband came down. He says, I'll drive. Now, Steve is a short guy, about five foot five, long dreadlocks, and he had on no shoes. So he goes to get in the car and my colleague says, and if you get in the car to move it with no shoes on, I'm going to write you a ticket for operating a vehicle in a dangerous manner. So by this time now, I'm embarrassed. I told them, I'll move the car. And that's what I did move their car up off the sidewalk. When he went down the street, I went back and I apologized because I was embarrassed. I didn't know who they were because I kept hearing the wife say, he, they obviously don't know who we are. I didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. And I later learned from his mother and his father who he was, and we became friends. And so that just enriched my career, but it also enriched me as a human because at the basic human level, I was seeing myself change. The very thing that got me in police force is the very thing that also brought me to changing and advocating for the community.
0: Do you think you would have come to that place had you not been a cop?
1: Probably. Hmm. It just would have been a different path that got me there. Mm -hmm. But definitely, um, I think, because, as my daughter likes to say, the opera singer, um, I'm a creative. And so as a creative, there's an energy that travels with us. Uh, I knew that I couldn't be in corporate America. I knew that I didn't like certain kinds of structures. I, I like a lot of everything, but none n- none, of one thing. And so um, I think that one of the other paths would have taken me there for sure.
0: sure. It's fascinating. And I totally get this as a creative who has had other professions and has had to have other more traditional sources of income that... You never stop defining yourself as the artist, as the artist that you are. But the world, seeing him walk down the street, sees him in the uniform of a cop and probably makes many assumptions, none of which is likely to be, hey, maybe this guy is financing his music career. However, sometimes the longer you stay doing that traditional thing, you start to notice change in yourself. You start to realize that, You can be gratified by some aspect of this quote-unquote traditional work in ways that you didn't expect. And something must have changed for him because he stayed. So I asked Alisi, why?
1: I started falling in love with the community, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I walked a beat. I didn't know the city of East Orange. I lived in a neighboring city, Newark. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with the people. I really did. I enjoy, you know. People even now they would ask me, "Well, do you miss the police department?" I said, "Not at all." What intrigued me the most was um, the the open arms of the community. So I was an I was an outcast on my force for the most part, and so even like you mentioned, the Renault Robinson Award. Well, anywhere else, out of forty thousand cops in a country, anywhere else, the city government would have celebrated it. Um, the police department would have celebrated. They didn't. So the community. Had a celebration for me at the home of one of the residents in the city who had about an acre of land around her house. And everyone in the community came out to celebrate me in her house at her lawn. So it was that kind of connection. I started doing community celebrations out on the street and the worst drug area of the city. I had a four block area that I walked the beat. We started doing an annual cookout on the street. And I would go to the drug dealers and say, Listen, today you're not going to sell drugs and I'm not going to arrest you. We're just gonna celebrate and have hot dogs, hamburgers, music, and celebration. And that became a part of my my, my work. That's why I stayed. And, I, and again, I stayed those 20 years because I genuinely began to enjoy working in the community. It was always a challenge. I prayed before I went in the police department and, sh- and prayed every time I walked out. But in the community, I was safest. Even when I was physically having to fight with suspects, the community would come to my defense.
0: It must have been so hard, in spite of all of that community support and love and protection, to go to work every day, not being supported, or even it sounds like respected by your your peers and your superiors.
1: So there were about at the time there were um, two hundred and seventy-two cops, I believe, somewhere around there, and I can remember police officers breaking the rules to come out of zone to back me up because I would call for help and help wasn't coming. And so I knew that there were a handful who were going to stand with me at all costs. And they did. And so that was rewarding. Like I didn't use the police locker room for 10 years. My last 10 years of my career, I didn't go in. I mean, I had been assaulted twice by my colleagues and and these were black officers. I wasn't fighting with white officers, right? Um, one officer grabbed me and choked me, caught me in a meeting one, one afternoon And said, if this was 20 years ago, we would have killed you by now because you're a traitor to this department and to this profession. And um, never forgot that. But again, you talk about how it changed me because I filed a complaint against the officer, signed a criminal complaint. And it was in court eventually after a second or third hearing. I mean, the courtroom was filled with officers. My supporters were on one side with the community and all the cops were on the other side because this officer was, um, you know, he was prominent and had rank. And the officer turned to me and says, man, I'm really sorry for what I did to you. I'd like this to go away. And at that point, I said to the judge, I'd like to drop the charges. And my supporters were like, why? And so it was important in terms of these are the ways that my life was changed by the police force. Because as much as I wanted to make him pay the price for assaulting me and humiliating me and doing all the things that were done, I also wanted to lead by example that we also must be prepared to forgive um under the right set of circumstances. And so half my family are Christian, half are Muslim. And so in both religions you are taught to forgive. And so in 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 obviously in Christianity, um, you know, we are to turn the other cheek or you're your brother and sister's keeper. In Islam, what it says is that says God says, be not the aggressor, that God doesn't like the aggressor. As Muslims, you only fight with those who fight with you. And when they stop fighting, you stop fighting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the moment he surrendered, I was obligated, because I thought it was sincere, to accept the apology.
0: Mm. Is surrender, do you think, critical to change?
1: Not always. Well, it depends on who's surrendering, Mm. right? So if we're talking about, um, in this instance, uh, he was the aggressor and the offender. But I think we both surrendered because he surrendered um, the facade of feeling the need to attack me publicly and privately. And I surrendered whatever that is that we hold, the need to win, the desire to be made whole, um, to be right under these circumstances. So in that instance, there was surrender on both sides. Both flags went up and and, and, and we've not had a problem since. And every time I've seen him, he's apologized, right? But I think to make change, um, you do have to give up something. Surrender may be a strong word for some, but you must be open to the idea that whoever you were, you will not be on the other side.
0: I wonder if that's why so many people are scared of change.
1: Yes. So (laughs) as I've learned growing up, change is a child of conflict. And so um, there are tensions that force people to change, That's why I was reluctant to talk about surrender in the context because some people don't want to surrender. They're forced. The circumstances and conditions make them change. And I I think that although it can be positive, that's the hardest change because you're going kicking and screaming, right? And so you do have to change and you do have to grow. And people are afraid of it because we're creatures of habit. And so they're very comfortable with what they're used to doing even when it's not good for them, you know?
0: Was all the venom, if you can characterize it that way, and the and the violence and the dislike of you, was it all because of Black cops against police brutality, or, or was there more to it than that?
1: I think that's the gist of it, I, and I would call it vitriol, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, I can tell you what some cops have said to me. We don't mind you doing social work, but you need to turn in your badge and gun and become a social worker. Um, I had cops tell me, point blank, we like knocking people in the heads. And so I don't know why you insist on defending people that we want to hit. Yes, I mean, I definitely triggered all of it because they knew if I walked in the room and you assaulted someone in front of me, I was telling. Period. It's simple. As I said to my colleagues, I don't give you permission to reduce my children's chances of going to college by me losing my pension because I was next to you as you behaved in a manner that's inconsistent with what we learned in the academy. I don't give you that permission. You have no right to put me in that condition. Therefore, if you put me and my family on the line, you need to know that I'm going to also put you and your family on the line.
0: How did you develop such a strong sense of boundaries and and maintain this moral compass in the face of complicated institutions and systems are so complicated?
1: Well, you know, um, my therapist, would say to me, because of course, with a lot of losses, which you're aware of, we went into grief counseling, me, the children, the whole bit. And a therapist says to me, he says, you know, when we do your Myers-Briggs, which is an evaluation or an assessment, Mm -hmm. he says, you score extremely high on ethics. Wow. He says, and people who score that high usually have very miserable lives. (laughs) He says, and what I need to help you understand is that these are humans you're working with. And they're fallible. And so that took some time and a lot of work to understand it. I think it comes from my parents. So my my mom had me at 19. She was a single mom, but she worked real hard. She raised me, my brother. She took in one of her sister's children and seven other children from the community and just raised them in our home. My dad, who was a hairdresser in a beauty salon and he was in the military, uh, my dad was a hairdresser for 65 years until his recent passing with uh, last year. Um, Dad actually was extremely disciplined in the home. And I was in trouble all the time because I was extremely undisciplined as a child. Okay. And so I developed it later in, later on in life because I remember he and my mom and my grandmother trying to drive it home to me and not getting it. And then one day it just clicked. So like to prepare for this, I prepared earlier on. I-, I was up at four o'clock this morning. I walked my two miles. I watered the lawn. I picked up the car, all of those kinds of things. So by the time most people are starting their day, I'm halfway through mine. Yeah. And so w- w- what I think we do is that we, we reinforce um, those good things. You know, as Ron Calissi, who was my instructor at my MAS program at um, Fairleigh Dickinson University, used to say, good habits are hard to develop and easy to break. Bad habits are easy to develop and hard to break.
0: I want to ask you about the Derek Chauvin trial Mm. and conviction. Does that signify that something has changed?
1: No. (laughs) No. Not at all.
0: Tell me about that.
1: So we're talking about Derek Chauvin, who's the officer that had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Yes. And what it says to me and what it triggered for me was the days of Ida B. Wells and the anti-lynching campaign. Mm-hmm. It triggered for me the song Strange Fruit, mm-hmm. that sung um, about Black men hanging from trees. It triggered for me, my grandmother Clara Molly Bell Johnson, born 1901, died 1982, the youngest of 10 children, and all of her aunts and uncles were slaves. It triggered for me Professor Gable Day, the fifth generation, the starting of my family, 1818, 1895, um, born in Loudoun County, Virginia. And the fact that he was called professor implies that he was educated at a time when being Black and educated were incongruent. So to see Derek Chauvin with his hand in his pocket And no compunction on his face about what was happening in the life of this man under his knee reminds me that the more things have changed, the more they remain the same. And while the country, um, rightfully so, was in an uproar and there was outcry, um, it's quiet now. And I don't think that a lot has changed because these are institutional problems. One would feel comfortable saying, well, Derek Chauvin's just a horrible human, but for the fact that he had 16 or 17 complaints before his encounter with George Floyd. So what it says is that they were willing to hold him accountable on this one because it was so egregious. But what about the first 16 or 17? Mm. That's problematic. I think what has changed is officers coming forward and testifying against him, his own chief and his own agency, is a significant change, but I believe that, remember we talked about circumstances and conditions sometimes force the change.
0: Yes, and but for the fact that none of the other officers who were with him did anything. Yes, so
1: it's a culture and, yeah. and that's the concern. It is the culture of law enforcement and that's what I've seen my entire career. And that's what grandma talked about before I ever became a police officer, the overt practices of racism. And, and degradation and oppression and police violence that occurred long before we got to Rodney King. Rodney King was the first capture on video, and Derek Chauvin is the most recent murder on video. But what happens is that there was all in between.
0: It's actually not that easy to find clear statistics on how many Black men have died at the hands of police officers since Rodney King. but. What I can tell you is police violence is still a leading cause of death for young men, young black men in the United States. Over the course of their life, one in every 1000 black men can expect to be killed by a cop. And black men are three times more likely to be killed by police than white men. And in the last five years, there has been zero reduction in the racial disparity in fatal police shooting victims. And I'm just talking about shooting deaths. I'm not even talking about all of the other things that people of color suffer short of murder. And even people of color who have status. Like, it's not just innocent young Black men being victimized by police. You're not going to believe the next story he tells about a Black female cop.
1: But just as we talk about, you know, Derek Chauvin and Mr. George Floyd, um, we can't forget that Carrie O'Horn... A black female police officer in Buffalo, New York, 21 years ago, jumped in between her partner and a black suspect that was handcuffed and being beaten by a white partner. And her partner then punched her in the face, flipped her, and the department prosecuted her, and she was fired in her 19th year. And it's only now that the city of Buffalo is making it right to reinstate her pension and all the back money that she had lost. But she paid a high price. She and her children were homeless. She was evicted. She became a truck driver to feed her children. And it has an impact. Mm -hmm. So when I think about has it changed, I don't think so. Things have not changed. Dr. Amos Wilson, who is the author of Black on Black Violence, The Psychodynamics of Black Self-Annihilation in Service of White Domination, used to say that what you will see in this society is people going up and down simultaneously. And they will hold out the people that are climbing the ladder and ascending as though we've reached some modicum of success while knowing all along that exponentially people in the same class and group are dying. And so that's an up and down simultaneously. The George Floyd and what we see is an up and down because folks are saying, see, the system worked. It worked that time. But there were 17 times before then that it didn't work. And if it didn't work there 17 times, what other places is change not occurring? I think the change for me in my lifetime is very much like when I was a child in, in this late 60s. Uh, we see coalitions across racial lines, ethnic lines, age, gender, sex. That's slightly different. Mm. Because white kids are standing up and saying, oh, I'm not taking it either.
0: Mm. Are you relieved that you're not doing that anymore, that you're that you're not a cop? Are you more angry, less angry? How do you feel?
1: So I recently turned down an offer to be considered for police director in an urban community. Okay. And I turned down an offer to be a police director in a Southern community. Okay. And they were community people that were coming to me. I don't miss it. I'm not angry. I think that We don't have leadership in the context of what it should look like. And so I'm training officers in other agencies around the country. And when I talk with them, like I was just in in a Southern state about a month ago, and at the end, three or four young officers walked up to me and says, man, can I stay in touch with you? Like, I've been here 10 years and I've been looking for that kind of energy and, you know, Can you just be the father figure in my life? This kid's 35 years old. And so what I recognize is that I don't think that there isn't a desire from officers in law enforcement to do the right thing. I believe there's a lack of leadership, not the status quo leadership, but leadership that is transformational, Mm -hmm. leadership that is progressive, leadership that's willing to, to challenge the status quo at all costs. You know, folks are coming on the police force, you know, and I said this to a group the other day. I says, all of you have told me the lie that you joined the police force to help people. Now, I'd like you to support your lying statement by telling me which people you help beyond your own family and friends and neighbors. And they were stuck Mm -hmm. because the reality is that that's what we're told to say. And I believe people start out there. That's not where you end up. When you're working 10 and 12 hours a day, when you're under pressure, when you've been trained from a warrior mentality that says it's them versus us, when you're cuffing people and, and you're calling people the, the N-word, the B-word, the mf all of those things, that takes a toll on you too. You know, you can't get in the, in the slop and don't think you're going to get dirty.
0: That reinforces this thought or idea that... It's why people won't change because, or or have trouble changing because prior to the change, you have to be willing to look in the mirror and see, turn over the rock, yeah. and see the ugliness and see yeah. see the things that need to change. And who wants to do
1: that? That's correct. That's right. You, you know, my mentor used to say to me, "The hardest thing to do is to look at yourself."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he would say to me, DeLacy, I want you to remember that when people." judge you. It's not based on who you are. They're judging you based on who they are. And they don't see the value in themselves. Therefore, they can't value what you're doing, or they don't have the courage to do what you want to do, and therefore they must condemn what you're doing. He went on one time to say to me, he says, I listened to your lecture and I need you to know that I need you to lighten it up sometimes and use some humor. Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying is so powerful that it's making me not able to look in the mirror. So I need you to lighten it up so people can see themselves. And so what I began to do is talk to people about their cousins. (laughs) I said, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your cousin. Or if I had a conversation in a predominantly white community, I would say, today I want to talk to you about white people. And I would say something that I knew would be a trigger. I says, oh, wait, but let's be very clear. When I tell you I'm talking about white people, I am not talking about you. I'm talking about filthy rich white people, not you. This is a different group. It would lighten the mood. And what I would be clear to do is to um, give them room to breathe. Mm -hmm. Like if I said something that I knew hit hard, I would say, now let's take a moment to let it marinate and let's breathe. And I would go through some breathing exercises with them. And I thank Dr. Sealy for that. He
0: sounds extraordinary.
1: He was. He was outstanding.
0: I'm sure we're going to come back around to some of this stuff, but I want to shift gears a little bit (laughs) because I'm so hungry to talk to you about fatherhood and mm-hmm. your five children. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how does biological fatherhood change you?
1: <clears throat> so I my daughter was playing. My daughter, Ayla Renee Davis, she's an opera singer. She graduated New England Conservatory of Music in Boston, went to arts high school in Newark, and good kid. She's 30 now, and she was outstanding. She is outstanding. However, we planned her. I called her mother one evening and said, listen, we're going to make the baby tonight. And we laugh about this because my daughter's like, dad, you really did. I said, I really did. Like we never had any oops. There were never any mistakes. Called her. I was at the police station desk. I'll never forget. 1.30 in the morning. And six weeks later, she was six weeks pregnant. And that's how my daughter was born. I picked her name two years before she was ever born. And I just knew I was being blessed with this child. So again, another change in my life. Another transition. Um, I was one of only two cops who had baby who small children who would go to court when I off duty in a suit and tie with a diaper bag and my six month old baby under my arm. Wow. And there I stood in front of the judge with a suspect to the right of me that I'd handcuffed and me there with holding my baby. And that was revolutionary. But it changed me because I wanted to show the world and I wanted to show men that I was proud to be a dad. Period.
0: Even just the telling of this story that you you <laughs> called her mother and said, we're going to make the baby tonight. It reflects back your definition of yourself as a change maker. It seems mm-hmm. to me you have a vision before a change happens. You yes. you have some energy that you're harnessing towards the change itself. Like, Tell me about how that lives in you.
1: So, um... In the African tradition, well, first of all, in the Western education, we don't learn any of that. Mm -hmm. But in the African tradition, it is not the man is stronger than the woman or vice versa. It is the duality of the African male and female Mm -hmm. energy. And that exists in all of us. Mm -hmm. And if you allow, as we call this third eye to be opened, it is an eye to the universe that will reveal those things to you. My grandmother, years ago, they explained it as veiled babies. Those were folks that could see things before they occurred. Um, in Western education, they attempt to try to explain it with either clairvoyance, people that could see forward, or essence, they can feel. Um, I can feel danger. My mother, can, when she was living, could always feel what state I was in no matter where I was in the country. I could be in trouble. I could be in crisis. She would call me and says, you're heavy in my spirit. What's going on? And so... I learned to not tune it out. I can Mm. feel it. I was jumped in my freshman year at high school, downtown Newark, walking out of school with a senior. And I said to him, somebody's getting ready. to Get their behind kicked. I could just feel it. I didn't know it was me, right? But I felt the energy. And 20 people who didn't go to school with me jumped me down there. Never forgot it. And I've always learned to tune into that feeling and that energy. So it is there. It's interesting that you picked that up.
0: You call it an energy and you call it feeling the feeling or that your mother could feel. And when you say state, you mean, you don't mean geographic state, you mean right. emotional state or psychological yes. state. Yes. So how do you get that information? Is it you, does something, do the hair stand up on the back of your arm? Do, do you hear a voice? Do you, you know, we you did, you just mentioned some people, there's clairaudience, there's there's clairvoyance, there's clairsentience. So do you, how does it come to you, the information?
1: Sometimes it's just in my gut. Hmm. I can feel it. Um, there are other times that they're just, something is bothering me. You know, there are times, I'll so for example, I sleep with a pen and pad on the side of the bed because I'll, I'll be awakened in the middle of the night. And it's just right there. Sometimes it's pictured right in my mind. Hmm. I can see it and feel it and it's accurate. And I know it.
0: I imagine that helps you so much in being an agent of change mm-hmm. because I imagine people sense it from you, but I also imagine the fact that you're willing to receive information from sources that are not of the intellect mm-hmm. or of the academic or, or of the practical world
1: mm-hmm.
0: is an advantage in all of the work that you do. Yes.
1: Yes. Absolutely. You know, my grandmother played the numbers. I'm not sure if you know what that was back in the day, mm-hmm. but you know, they go look at the horse races and take the first three numbers of the pot, and that was the number people put their money on, those three numbers, and the number after that was the other number that they wanted to do a straight and box or however they called it. Well, whenever I needed, I got my first kunga drum, I was about nine years old. And then I was going to be playing with a band and I needed a really nice fiberglass Latin percussion drum. And at that time, it was at Rondo's Music on Route 22, and it was $125. And that was a lot of money back mm-hmm. then. And my mother says, I don't have that kind of money. And I said, Grandma, I really want that drum. She said, Well, let me pray on it, baby, and play the number. Just don't you worry. Grandma got you. And about a week later, Grandma hit the number. And grandma handed me and my mom $125 to go get my drum. I always knew she had that energy, right? Grandma just could do it. Grandma made it work. She made things right. So I've learned not to reject the information that comes to me from other sources Mm. unless it's dark. Mm. And there have been a couple of times in the police department where total strangers have come to my office to see me and I could see a cloud around them. And I instantly would not meet with them. And I would sage my office all the time.
0: So this human is just a surprise at every turn. It is not every day that you get a visual of a police sergeant saging his office to get rid of the bad juju. And he's not just surprising on the job. He's surprising in his personal life, too, because even though he shared that he explicitly planned the conception of his first child, he went down a totally different road for his other kids. So, so let's go back to now. Could you walk me through how each of your adopted daughters?
1: Yes. So Jarissa is the first one that I legally adopted. My mom helped me to raise all of them. Um, Jarissa was, was brought to the Police Athletic League inside the police department by um, her therapist because she was violent. Um, she's diagnosed bipolar schizoaffective, one of six children, violently molested as a child at four years of age, and had been in a group home from four years old until the 12 when I met her. And she'd punch you in the face if you confronted her. That's how she responded. She was a little thing, about a size four, but she would fight you all the time because she said she was always the youngest one in the group home, so she had to fight. Well, they brought it to me and says, well, we want to know, can she join the program? I said, yes, we'll put her on a boxing team. You said she punches. Let's see if she likes to punch consistently. And so usually... <laughs> When we put them on a the boxing team, it's two months before we let them get in a ring with anyone with the headgear and the heavy gloves. But uh, I called up to the gym and said, put her in the ring today. Make her run the two miles first, then put her in the ring. Put the headgear on her, make sure she's protected, and put the 16-ounce gloves on her. And she tells this story to this day. She said, when that boy punched her in the face and she fell back with those that headgear, she said, that's what it feels like when I've been punching people in the face all these years. Never knew because no one had ever hit her. Because you can't use physical force or corporal punishment with children who are wards to the state. So no one would, could ever hit her back. So that was her first wake up. But she stayed in the program and she started coming for six months. So she brought a photo album, which I later learned is called a, um, it's a life book. There we go. Nice. And it looked like a photo album, but it's just her journey. And we had it in the, in the um, my file cabinet locked up because the pictures, some of them weren't very pleasant. They were nefarious. And so we didn't want people seeing her in these suggestive poses. So she came in one day, said, Sarge, I need my photo album. I said, why? She said, because I'm getting ready to age out the system. Um, I'm 13, 14 years old. They told me that I need to find my own forever family before I age out. And so I said, girl, please, you don't need a photo album. I know what you look like. I'll adopt you. And she started crying. And I didn't know what I had said. So we took put all the kids out the office. I had kept a female officer in with me. We closed the door. We said, why are you crying? She said, because I've been wanting to ask you for six months to adopt me, but I thought you would say no. So then I started crying because I was now stuck, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we teach our children that your word is your bond and your bond is your life and you should give your life before you break your word. And so at that point, I knew I was going to be adopting a child. So it was a very long process. It was very difficult. It took me 18 months to adopt her. Um, There were many roadblocks put before me. And so they did a lot of stuff to discourage me from adopting her. And then we finally pushed the envelope and I was able to adopt her at 14 years of age.
0: Was that an impulse on your part?
1: It was. It wasn't my plan. <laughs> 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 it, it was those boundaries we talk about. I've given my word. Impulsively?
0: Impulsively.
1: I did, because I didn't know that that's what I was saying at the time. But once I realized how sincere she was, how could I not do it? Wow. How has she changed you? Oh my God! So she tells everyone this. She's she's now thirty-one years of age. She's like, I was Dad's hardest challenge because I fought with Dad. I kicked. I cut him with my foot. I ran away. I did all sorts of things. I told him one time I was, he was she was sixteen. I don't want to live here anymore. There's too many rules, too many boundaries, and I don't want to live on them. So when you're not looking, I'm gonna run away. And people, she said. And people said, Well, what did he say? He said, You don't have to run. You can walk. And I opened the door. You can leave. So she said. She went to get a jacket and some socks. He said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh uh-uh. Whatever you declare your freedom in is what you leave in. Give me that jacket. I paid for it. You can have that T-shirt, those sweatpants, and you can put on a pair of sneakers. I'll see you later. And she walked out the door. Now, she, you know, she said it was cold and she realized that she made some bad choices. Eventually had a pastor call me saying, you know, Brother DeLacy, she'd like to come back home. She's welcome to come home. But just help her understand she's coming home to the same rules that she walked away from. And so she has her own child now who's six years old, Jayla. And she's like, Daddy, I learned so much from you and and Grandma. She says, I'm so thankful that you never gave up. I used to have a saying with her. I used to tell her that I will be your dad even when you're no longer my daughter. And she said she didn't understand it then. But when life was difficult for her in other places as she's become a grown woman and traveled, but she says, I realize what you meant. She says, I was angry and yelling and screaming and cursing and you never gave up on me. You continued to love me. So I now know that you stayed my dad even when I wasn't being your daughter. Mm -hmm. And so she changed me in that regard, that you learn that there are things that you don't have any control over. Mm -hmm. And as a woman taught me when I was um, training to adopt her, because in New Jersey, they make you go through training, she said, you will be your child's only advocate.
0: Well, I was going to ask you if if that made you feel pressured in any way, but clearly you adopted three more children after that. So tell me about that.
1: After her was LaJuan. LaJuan is now 33 years old. She has two twins, Monroe and Mason. And then she has um, her oldest son, her first son, DeLacy, is 11 years old. Um, her mom's Jamaican, dad's Jamaican, dad's doing life in prison and her mom brought her to the police department. And they brought her there to have her arrested, and she says, and Sarge, call me Sarge, with her Jamaican accent, she says, Sarge would not lock me up. He said, let me put her in a program. She's been all over the world. She's now a seamstress. She taught herself to sew, because my grandmother had a singer sewing machine in the basement, and then she sent herself to FIT, and she's doing pretty well for herself. The next one was um, actually uh, Dominique. And so Dominique actually lived with us as well, And Dominique was the one that really got away. She's Black and Puerto Rican. I just heard from her for the first time since my mom passed in 2012 this year. She called me about a month ago. And she said, this is Dominique. I'm like, which Dominique? Dominique Blanding, your daughter. I said, oh, where have you been? And so she she spent some time away, and she's now pulling her life together. So those were the three who lived with me. And then, of course, we had another one, Basima, who didn't live with us because her parents wouldn't allow it. But Basima stayed close and she's now 33 years old, just graduated the police academy and calls me dad. And I've been in her life all of her life. And then my son, Karim. Karim is actually now, I just saw him last month. His mom got married and Karim is now 38 years of age. Uh, he's living in Atlanta and he's doing the same thing now. He has two children of his own and took in two of his sister's children. He's like, dad, this is what you taught us. You took all of us in. You raised us. We weren't even your kids. You just took us in and raised us and did what you need to do to make ends meet. And so for that, I have to give it back to other people.
0: Did you ever have moments of thinking, forgive my French, what the hell am I doing?
1: Yes, definitely. I asked myself, how did I get here? They cost me a relationship. It wasn't my marriage, but they one of the relationships um, at that time, someone I'd been with for a long time. She said, listen, I don't want to work with other people's problems. That's what she told me. And so my children rallied around me. It became the rallying cry. You know, this is our dad and we're brothers and sisters, not by blood, but because he took us in. And so that's kind of how it went. And that's how it's been. Now they get along very well now with my birth child, but early on they did not. Okay. And of course, for, for my birth child, again, we talk about the change. The difficulty was in me understanding her discomfort. I mean, we got a chance to talk about it over the last couple of years. And she said, dad, I thought you were replacing me with these mm-hmm. children. And it wasn't that I was replacing her; it was that her mom and I split when she was 14, and I had no control over it. And no matter what I tried to settle with her mom, um, it didn't go the way it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. Mm. And I didn't have access, and so I had to accept for a couple of years what it was. But by the time she was 18, 19, we were able to reconnect, and I have not been able to get rid of her since. What all of these children have done for me is um, help me understand that we got to give each child what they need. Mm. And their needs vary. Sometimes they're similar, but often they're varied. Someone said to me last week, you know, what good is being a Black cop today? You know, what does you, having been an officer for 20 years, what has been the benefit? They're still beating and killing people. And I said to them, but let me name these children for you who are exponentially, they are power multipliers. Because Mm -hmm. if I had not been in their lives, they would not be doing the work they do in other people's lives. That's the impact. It's exponential. You can't put a measurement on it.
0: How do you get through those moments of discomfort, like years apart from your daughter? Um, That was tough.
1: Um, What I did to get through those, it was about two years. I was unemployed 18 months, and I was struggling with that, and I was struggling with no connection. And so I would make myself save $200 every month toward my daughter and I would would go and buy a money order and put it in a drawer and I'd Mm -hmm. fill it out with her mother's name on it and just have the receipts and so I knew that there would come a time when we would talk and when we finally did I had a stack of money orders like this and I says I've been saving this to give to you guys because the one thing I value was being a good dad (laughs)
0: You talked about your first adoptive daughter leaving, r- yes. running away or walking away. Yes. And then you talked about explaining to her via the pastor that if she returned, there would be the same rules that there were before. And I wonder if you can draw lines for me between rules and change as you
1: see it. So I, I think that all of us need boundaries. Mm-hmm there's got to be some lines in the sand that you cannot cross. And there also have to be some lines in the sands that you must be pushed over, right? So there are different types of lines. And so when I think in terms of rules, for example, um, this is a kid that I met at 12 years old that was sleeping with a 24-year-old man, smoking marijuana, drinking alcohol. There's got to be some rules in the sand, right? You can't smoke here. You need help, we'll get you treatment. You can't get drunk here. You can't have sex with grown men here. That's just what it is. Now, if we can help you stay in the box, then we can also help you toward change. And the change that we'll make will be around the goals that you say you want in your life. So for example, we learned later that she suffered from dyscalcalia, which is dyslexia with numbers. No Mm -hmm. one knew that and she didn't know that. But what it means is that you can't do small number counting in your head and mental math. And so my mom developed, my mom was the one that actually diagnosed it. And then the doctor says, yeah, that seems to be what her problem is there. And so my mom would say to her baby, any morning that one-in-one is adding up to three, I want you to tell grandma and grandma's going to be right there at your side. And so that was her way of communicating that she was out of balance or that her chemicals were off. Mm -hmm. She would say, grandma, one-in-one is three today. Or if we saw her unkempt, if we saw her hair not done, if we saw her unwilling to get in the water to take a shower, to take a bath, right? Those were all indicators, but they were also lines in the sand. Babe, you have to wash every day. Mm. You have to get out the bed. You have to do your hair. And so that helped her get to the change. She still has the diagnosis, but she now understands medication monitoring. She's able to identify a program for herself. She recognizes that she'll always be in counseling or always need to be balanced, but she's able to do that for herself now.
0: That's incredible. I I love one and one is three today, because to me it's it's like name it and claim it, name it and tame it. It's, it's giving someone language. Yes. For something that's, maybe it's something that's hard for them or something that they're embarrassed about and it has shame attached to it, but I think when we can give them language that's more metaphorical and more poetic and yeah. And comes from a place of authority. My experience of this is one and one is three today. Yes. It it, move, it shifts the lines yes. of the box a little bit for them, maybe. I love yeah. that, what you said about a line we can't cross and a line we have to be pushed over. <laughs> <laughs> what are some lines that you've needed to be pushed over?
1: I struggled with change. My mother told me that every time I transitioned, it was difficult. I went kicking and screaming from kindergarten to first grade, from eighth grade to ninth grade, from 12th grade to college and every degree. And I would agree. I've just learned to accept it more. You know, one of my staff used to say, Dr. Davis, nothing seems to bother you. I said, everything bothers me, but you never get to see me sweat. She's like, why? I said, because I can't change it. And so therefore I'm not going to spend a lot of energy fighting it. For me, some of the lines being pushed over was accepting that I wasn't going to have a relationship with my daughter and her mother until the time was right.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I had to be pushed over those lines. Because one of the hardest parts for all of us is to accept being rejected. It's difficult. No one wants to be rejected. What I learned, though, is my mom used to tell me, if you're thinking about her, she's thinking about you. She's just not telling you. And then what I learned later on in life is that you survive based upon the team that you're on. So if you've got a good team around you, meaning support system, people that are going to tell you the truth about you, going to support you and help you move forward, you'll probably outlast the pain because you'll do things that will eventually get you over that line, which is, and I tell you, men this when I'm talking to them, especially men that are aggressive with women, that if you can trust what I'm telling you, you'll wake up one day and the pain will be gone. You won't even know where it went. You won't even remember that you had it. But you got to take all of these steps in that direction, Kimosabi, if you want to win.
0: You talked before about this idea of what I would call the divine feminine and the divine masculine and Mm -hmm. how it's in all of us. But we're at such an interesting time culturally with Me Too and maybe men bearing the brunt of a pendulum that's swinging, you know, in a way towards saying by virtue of being a man, you have wronged me. You know, a lot of reaction toward the patriarchy. How can how can that change? How can How can men and women change together in a way that is good for both? And also everyone who's not on the binary spectrum, because I say that and I realize we don't all identify only in one way or the
1: other. And that becomes challenging, I think. And I'll even not even take men and women, I'll take black men and women, because that is a conversation in and of itself. And so I think that at at the very core of it, it is that duality, it is that mutual respect It is that not letting anyone define our reality. It's those principles that we practice in my home of Kwanzaa, right? What comes to mind for me is Chagalia, self-determination, to name, create, define, and speak for ourselves rather than to allow others to do it for us. Just the very experience of Black men and women in this country requires us to be united because you could not ever have a baby that looks like me, light, bright, damn near white, unless someone's putting cream in the coffee and loving it, and it's not just McDonald. The reality is that we come from a legacy of oppression, struggle, rape, violence, and pillage in this country. That experience is real. And Black men being castrated, castigated, vilified, and horrified, wife taken at anybody's leisure when they choose to. And so some of this struggle in my community is man-made and not necessarily made by those who are victims. But because we don't have a historical analysis and understanding of how we come to be adversarial, it gets exacerbated. And with each generation and their removal from the true understanding of that, it gets even worse. Not all of our young people know that because that's not being taught in schools. I mean, they keep talking about critical race theory. No one wants to teach critical race theory. We want to teach the truth about America's history. Because if you teach America's history, it is black history. There's nothing else to teach. What are we talking about? You brought people here, you had free labor, you had a 400 year head start, and then you say, pick yourself up by the bootstrap. Well, let me tie you up out back and build me a few houses, and let me tell your generations to come, pick yourself up by the bootstrap. It's an unfair argument. It's an unrealistic perspective. This is where the truth and the heart of it lies, right? In the struggle for liberation, in the struggle for human dignity. But we have to be honest. We have to find the strength and the courage of conviction to have those courageous conversations. What are we going to do differently?
0: I think that's great. I, I keep thinking about staying in the conversation Mm. when there's disagreement and staying in it in such a way that you've talked about where even if you have feelings and you're really ruffled you don't let them out necessarily you don't speak from that place you accept that the other person has a different point of view and you try to you try to hear their point of view and understand their
1: point of view it's it's really hard Well, Stephen Covey says, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Mm. Dr. Joy DeGruy, who did her research on the West Coast and her book is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, she says that when we talk about healing and the country must heal, we must first commit when we go into the room that no one can leave the room. (laughs) That's got to be the first commitment. If we're going to talk about healing, you and I, black and white, man and woman, non-binary and binary, we must agree that no one can leave the room. That's the first commitment.
0: I like that because it's a rule again. It's a parameter. And it demands a commitment on both ends. It demands engagement.
1: That's correct. If, in fact, you want me to change... Right. It's like going to church and they asked you to come. The doors of the church are open. Some people are afraid to walk up to the altar. So they'll say somebody will come and get you. Raise your hand. And we walk down together. She says, so if you want me to help, you want me to let you help me heal, then I need to see you go through the door first. And if you go through the door, I'll go through the door. And so what we do in this room is that we all commit to staying in the room. And whichever door we're going to go through, we're going through together or not at all.
0: It is a hugely powerful metaphor for our country at this moment to think about it. We talk about borders and immigration and who we let in and who we want out, but we're not committed right now to staying in the room with each other. No, not <laughs> but either. if we thought about our country as a room that we all had to stay in.
1: Right. Change is difficult. I told you change mm-hmm. is a child of conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so folks aren't prepared for that. Um, folks want a nice change. (laughs) You know, I want to change. (laughs) No, it's like, you can't go to war and it's going to be a bloodless. No, we're going to lose somebody on our side, Mm. period.
0: You mentioned that bringing the children into your life cost you a relationship. Tell me about some of the other sacrifices you
1: made. Um, it's they were economic. I mean, I'm not wealthy. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I would most folks would char- characterize me in the beginning of my career. I started. I was making eighteen thousand six hundred sixty-one dollars. That's what I signed up for. I had to also take care of mom, right, while taking care of children. Um, the sacrifices were around. Folks accusing me. I testified against a black mayor and a black chief for a white captain in a federal discrimination lawsuit in 1997 because I was asked to tell the truth. It was one of the most difficult things to do in my career. And it was Black officers who came to me for him. And the Black community wanted to understand, why did you do this? And I told them point blank, if you saw me testify for a white captain against a Black mayor and a Black chief, that white guy was right twice. And as painful as it was for me, because all my colleagues were on the other side, I have to walk my talk. There's no Black right and a white right It's just right and there's wrong. Mm. And I've learned that in this journey. It's also a price to pay for that. Because the reality is that when a people have been oppressed for so long in a country, there's an inclination to want to give the oppressor or someone who looks like the oppressor their comeuppance. And that I understand. But what I also understand is the laws of reciprocity. And I recognize that what you place into the universe is what you get back. And so if you want love for your children, then you must be loving. If you want compassion, then you must be compassionate. And you don't give it to the people that you want it from. You give it and put it into the universe and it will come back to you tenfold. And so it's difficult as some of these decisions were for me and have continued to be. I know that I must make them because they're the right position. I often tell my people, you must do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, period. Didn't say anything about race, gender, age, color, like or dislike. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And those are the lessons that have been missed. When we see um, folks that we know are gaslighting people, whether we're talking about elections, whether we're talking about people t- attacking the Capitol, whether we're talking about people outright attacking and killing police officers. And we're going to tell people, you don't don't believe your lying eyes. And the reason they're able to do that now is because when it was done with Rodney King in 1991, that's exactly the playbook strategy that was used on the black and brown community. Don't believe your lying eyes. And this is why they moved the court case um, at that time with Rodney King to Simi Valley, which was a cop-friendly community, and they were not convicted there. So we know it works. And so now we're seeing it to the 10th power because it's money and value and benefit and lying and stealing and conniving, regardless of the truth. And we cannot sacrifice the truth for anyone.
0: I'm just breathing with that. What brings you joy?
1: Oh my God, watering my lawn. (laughs) Um, I I do that every morning and every afternoon. Watching the underdog win brings me great joy, (laughs) great joy. Um, When I see young people that are on fire for learning and fire for justice and social justice and change, that makes me happy. When I see folks across the genres, um, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing says in the ISIS papers that there's nine people area activities that are dominated by white supremacy. And if we want real change in this country, then we must get into those institutions and we must either tear them down and rebuild them or we must reform them. And they are economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, sex, war and religion. I see your hands up. Yes.
0: <laughs> no, I'm giving you a an amen. <laughs> yes. And so you and, and 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 the way you rattled them off, I give you an amen to that too.
1: Yes, seeing people in those areas making progress brings joy.
0: Before I give you some rapid fire questions and we wrap up, I want to ask you. I don't know anyone who's had a an audience with both Nelson Mandela and the Pope.
1: What? Winnie Mandela and the Pope, yes. Winnie, Winnie. Winnie Mandela, the wife, yes. And the Pope, Pope John Paul II, yes.
0: Did those experiences change you? If
1: so, how? I would say that it gave me a different perspective. The meeting with Winnie Mandela changed me significantly mm. because I had six days with her. So that's that's why. Um, to be in the company of Winnie Mandela was mind-boggling for me. Um, she would tap me on the face and say, my dear son, let me explain this to you. And she would just explain things, especially things that I didn't understand, things I didn't agree with. We talked about Nelson Mandela in the context of um, what she thought relative to his new presidency. And what she said was that he did not have control over the apparatus in South Africa, that he was only the president ceremonially because they had not given up the power. And she was right.
0: You don't seem like someone who needs invigorating from an external source, but did she invigorate you?
1: Oh, she's exciting to me because she was a woman with courage. Um, she was feisty. She reminded me of the women that I come from. She reminded me of my mother. She reminded me of my grandmother. I often have said the strongest Black men I've ever known have been the Black women in my life because they were fighters.
0: Okay. We're going to do some rapid fire. And yes. I, this might be hard for you.
1: Because... It's not. I call it pepper.
0: Okay, good. So we're just the first thing that comes to your mind. Don't think. Just Just say it. Fill in the blank. Change requires blank.
1: Courage. If
0: you could go back in time and change one thing and only one thing about your past, what would it be? Wealth. What is one thing, big or small, you would like to see change in the world?
1: The truth about Black people.
0: What is one thing, big or small, you hope never changes?
1: the courage, the conviction, and the strength of Black people.
0: What is one small or superficial thing you'd like to change about yourself?
1: My tolerance for nonsense.
0: Not very superficial, but okay. How often do you change your toothbrush?
1: It's changed for me. (laughs) 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 I would never change it, but it's changed for me. (laughs)
0: Oh, That's funny. Um, Okay, I think I know the answer to this one, but I'll ask it anyway. Are you a change maker, a change seeker, or a change resistor?
1: I'm a change maker for sure.
0: What does your next big change look like? And feel free to be aspirational or fantastical or imaginative about that one.
1: I'll give the answer that Dr. Jones Brown gave me. She wants me to make all of the impact that I made as a practitioner in law enforcement and advocate in the academic world.
0: Academia needs you. What would you say to someone who is looking to create a personal change that lasts?
1: Start with the small things. Don't go beyond your means. Find some small goals and get some small victories. And then as you start getting better at this, built-in accountability partners. Look around your circle. If you're the smartest one in your circle, you're in a slow circle or not very bright circle. So you need to surround yourself with what you want to become and who you want to become. And then finally, if you become who, who and what you want to become, then pass the baton so that we can bring people forward.
0: Mm-hmm. You've been through a lot of changes professionally. Yeah. You've had a lot of different careers. You've been through a lot of personal changes, some of which we've talked about today. What remains the same or unchangeable about you, Dr. Davis?
1: My integrity, Mm -hmm. my belief in humanity, my willingness to risk it all for taking a principled position, uh, my love of people and humanity, um, my understanding that somebody prayed for me. That's why I'm still here my understanding that folks in the white community sacrifice for me as well as black and brown and other people. I understand the value of diversity. I recognize that it's going to take coalitions and stakeholders from all walks of life for us to be successful. So we will either all rise together or we will all be doomed to where we're going now.
0: You're such a wonderful, beautiful, generous teacher. I feel like I could go to your class every week and write furiously with my pen and paper. I just want to thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice. Engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom.
1: Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at prayedfoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org and by the Center for Innovation in Population Health at the University of Kentucky online at iph.uky.edu